Hello and welcome to Co-OpCast, a podcast about cooperative board games with your hosts, Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly. Hi, I'm Peter and I'm here with Mike. Hello, hello. And welcome to episode 8 of Co-OpCast. Today we're looking at Too Many Bones from Chip Theory Games. I guess they're best known before this game for the Hoplomachus series. So let me get a little bit into the history of the Too Many Bones universe. So in Too Many Bones, you're going to be playing a race of adventurous creatures called Gearlocks. They are described as having the face of an elf, the stature of a goblin, and the tech ability of gnomes. So they're kind of this hybrid fantasy class. They have a love of both nature and machines. They thirst for adventure, and they're fearless and resourceful. And the point of that is they kind of are perfectly suited to go on this little adventure that they're setting forth on. It almost reminds me a little bit of The Hobbit, where they kind of take this group, this small group, to fight against this large army. And so your goal is to kind of go in and take out the tyrants. So an assassination mission, sort of? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you're forced out of your home. You go to this town called Obendar. And the people there basically decide the best way they can win is if they take out these tyrants. You know, they each run their own kind of clans. So you have seven different tyrants in the main box. And your goal is to, in each mission, go and take out one of these different tyrants. So, Mike, why don't you get into the rules? All right. So... The core gameplay of this game is tactical combat on a little board with uh, you and the enemies represented by chips. Clearly chip theory games from the name. You can tell they like their poker chips. So uh, you have these really like high quality chips and you have chips underneath your characters that show the amount of hit points you have. Yeah, so you play through a series of days and as each day advances, the game becomes tougher because you have to face more monsters and on a given day, you draw an encounter card, which will have a little bit of a story text about what's going on with your gear locks. You'll often have a choice of how you conduct the next battle, because most of them lead to battles. Uh, sometimes there'll be a special rule for that battle. Generally, you'll fight enemies based on the number of players in the game and the number of days you've played so far. So again, it gets tougher and tougher as the game goes on. The enemies come in 25 and 1 point values. 20s are incredibly tough. 5's pretty tough. The 1's pretty easy. Um, and you are forced to use the highest that you can. So like, if you have eight points of enemies coming at you, you must use one five enemy and three one enemies. Now, you can only have four enemies on the board at a time. They're each keyed to a different color. Any other enemies will wait in a stack until they come in. And uh, there's this little initiative track on the right. Enemies have a set initiative number. Players roll for their initiative. And you just resolve turns in initiative order. Enemy AI is super simple. Uh, if they're melee, they'll move two spaces towards you and attack you. If they're ranged, they'll attack uh, whoever their target is. They tend to go for... Enemies will go for stronger or weaker characters. And then on your turn, you have an agility value, which is uh, how many spaces you can move and or how many dice you can roll. So those points, you got to do one or the other. Uh, you have attack and defense dice that are very basic, and you can use every turn that do damage and prevent damage. And each character also has their own special dice that they'll level up to gain more and more of. But those character dice, once they're rolled and used once, are gone for the rest of that battle. Whereas the attack and defense dice generally stay around. Pretty much all of the results on dice are good and useful. Some slightly better than others. But there are bones on pretty much every die. And I guess that's where the name Too Many Bones comes from. 
And bones you roll can be placed on this uh, backup plan track. And the more bones you have, the more powerful abilities you can get from that. Generally, you'll fight until all the enemies are defeated, until all of you are defeated. Even if all of you are defeated, it does not mean you lose the game, but you don't get to level up generally. And since you go into a new day, you're going to face more enemies next time. So even though you don't automatically lose, you can kind of get into a death spiral that way. But most battles will level you up. Generally, you can uh, either choose to use or gain new character dice. Often there's prerequisites, so some dice you need to have other dice already unlocked to gain. And you can also try to up your basic statistics, how much agility you have to move and roll dice, how much health you have, how much attack you have, how much defense you have. And uh, each tyrant, each of the the bosses you're trying to reach, uh, some of them have a shorter game length, some of them have a longer game length. Once you've uh, resolved enough encounters to reach the tyrant's required value then you can choose to fight the tyrant instead of having a regular battle. And if you can defeat the tyrant, you win. Again, if you lose against the tyrant, you can just try again the next day, but they're probably going to have more uh, troops, so you need to have a bit of luck to make it through to the end. Yeah, so let's go ahead and get into our new format. Again, we're talking about now the top five to ten things we need to know about the game. We're each going to come up with a list of five. And so we may have some overlap, But we're going to start with the least important thing, at least in our minds, that we need to know. And we're going to work our way to the number one thing. So, Peter, why don't you tell us what was your number five for Too Many Bones? So, my number five is the between the mission stuff. So, what I mean by that is we talk a lot about how combat works. And combat's pretty cool in the game. But the game I always associate this game with is Assault on Doomrock. Because in that game, you're doing... Some cool fighting stuff, but then there's an in-between phase as well. And I think the thing I like about this one a little bit better, and I like just in general about this, is between missions doesn't take a lot of time. It gets you right back into the action pretty quickly. Typically, after you defeat an encounter, you're going to gain rewards, which include leveling up your character or getting items or getting trove loot, something like that for beating the encounter. You resolve that pretty quickly. You heal up all your hit points, or if you didn't get wounded, you get a little bit of an advantage. You can look ahead to see what some of the other enemies might be that you're going to fight. And then you get right back into the next encounter. So I really like how that between missions, the stuff that you don't want to take a long time doesn't take a long time. But at the same time, you still feel like you're getting that progression between one encounter and the next. I enjoyed the in-between stuff of Assault on Doomrock. I think a little bit more than you did. But... Assault on Doomrock can take like four to five hours to play, so I, I do agree with you that the streamlined in-between stuff here is is probably preferable because of that. All right, Mike, so what's your number five? That's my number five is a mix, uh, not, a, not necessarily a pro or a con, and that's the component quality of the game. This is a pretty expensive game. Chip Theory Games, their entire brand is built on making uh, high-quality, expensive games. So the reason it's mixed, the poker chips are great. They feel really good in your hand. Uh, we don't have the deluxe health chips, but even the basic red chips still feel good. The artwork is generally attractive. I like the sort of black and white effect they went with with the enemies. I think that's pretty cool. And all the boards, they're basically like mouse pad material if uh, you haven't seen them before. And they feel really nice. So that's all good. The negatives I have, I don't like the cards. They're kind of like a plastic card. Number one, you can't really shuffle them. Number two, I don't really like how they feel in my hand. I do prefer, like, t- traditional cards. Um, and also, the the printing is a little bit dark on them. I don't know if that's just an effect of the plastic cards, but I have trouble reading them sometimes. And then uh, they also have these uh, 
these like little player sheets that uh, are guides to the enemy powers and the character powers, and those are also like a plastic paper kind of a thing. And I don't know, I, I was a little bit weird about by all of that. I'm fine with just cardboard and uh, and like regular cards. I think they sort of went above and beyond on those components unnecessarily, and actually I like them less than the typical type of things. Yeah, I, I do like the cards personally, but. Would I have been offended if they had used normal cards? Absolutely not. I like them for a change of pace. I don't have a problem shuffling them. In fact, I think if you riffle shuffle them, they're less likely to get damaged over time. But again, I didn't need them. Like if they were normal cards, I wouldn't have had any problem with it at all. But I agree with you on the components as well. I I do think that they are good quality components and I do like the artwork as well. All right. Number four, Peter. So my number four is the leveling system. I like how simple and easy it is. Basically, you get a certain number of experience for completing an encounter. However many points you have, that's how many new dice you can acquire or attributes you can bump up. So if you want to bump up your agility so you get to roll more dice on a turn, you can just bump that up by one. So if your agility is normally three, you normally get to move and or roll three dice. You can bump it up to four. That gives you an option to move and or roll four dice on your next turn. You can get specialty dice. Each gear lock has their own special set of dice, and it's different from gear lock to gear lock. And so they feel unique in that way. But at the same time, you could just spend all your points leveling up attack and defense as well, which every gear lock can do. So I just liked how simple it worked and how you did get a progression from the beginning of the game to the end. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to discuss uh, some of those points later, so I'll kind of hold my opinion for now. But d- definitely, uh, I, I noticed a lot of the same things you did there. Cool. So, Mike, what is your number four? My number four, which is a negative, is the uh, the rules for the game and how clear they are. There's been a lot, if anyone's gone on a BGG or Reddit or anything and looked at the game, there's a lot of stuff about how uh, the rules are very tough and a lot of things are not defined, which I completely agree with. I will say, though, that the reason it's not as uh, not too high for me is because Peter taught it to me the first time I played, and he taught it very well. So although I recognized, like, when I tried to refer back to things while playing it solo that the rules were bad and that a lot of stuff was not explained well and you needed to go online to find answers, uh, my experience wasn't too negative with that because I had someone to teach me the game. But, uh, yeah, as a, as a first-time adopter of the game, especially if you didn't go online to look up uh, FAQs and that kind of stuff... I just think it could be a really negative experience because, man, they really did not... I cannot imagine they blind playtested this much because you just can't figure out how to play correctly in a lot of cases without uh, checking online. Yeah, and I agree with you, and I don't have this exactly, so I'm going to get into one point of the rules. I will say it's very frustrating when you have a rule book that might seem easy to learn the game, and this is not an overly complex game. And when there are rules just clearly left out, like... You start with these dice, but it doesn't tell you what side of the dice they start on, because some of them will tick up. They don't say anywhere that they start at zero. Now, I do know that there was a new printing of the rulebook and a new printing of a lot of the cards, but when you spend $100 on a game and your main focus is components, you need to get these things right the first time. I mean, there were probably 20 to 50 updated cards, you know, that came out with this upgrade pack to get it up to second edition. Now, if you're ordering right now, you're going to get the newest versions of everything, but I still think there are things left out. So for example, like they use the word thump on Boomer's card. So you can use the bones you roll to get these backup plans. And number one on Boomer's card says something like thwack an opponent for one. Well, what does that mean, right? They're using (laughs) flavor text to explain the rule 
And even with the second printing, they didn't change that. So I get it. They want it to be a thematic experience. But come on, put a rule in there, right? Like, explain what that means. Like, does that mean I have to attack the same guy? Does that mean I can hit somebody else? He's a range character. Can I do it at range? Thwack sounds to me like I might have to hit him at close range. Like, none of it is explained. And this is an updated version of the rulebook. So things like that just frustrate me. And while it's not on my list, I have something similar later on. I just wanted to get that portion of my rant out of the way. (laughs) Well, uh, keep talking, Peter. Go right into number three then. All right, my number three actually kind of goes off of my leveling system that I just talked about. And I do feel like character progression can get samey in this game. And so what I mean by that is, even though you have different tyrants to fight, and that does change up your progression a little bit, maybe what you want to go for, it's not really enough to change what I'm going to do. There's still clearly better paths to go down than others. As I'm leveling up a character, you know, with Boomer, the one I was talking about before, you want to get your grenades early on. You want to go down that path. Very rarely are you going to go down the defensive path just because you don't have enough time to level up, which is cool because that means you don't get to see everything every game. But at the same time, I just don't think some of those other powers are worthwhile spending your level ups on because you have so many other cool things you could level up instead that you almost need to get just to a base level of power to even have a chance to fight the tyrant at the end. Yeah, my my number three, I, I do agree with you, Peter. Uh, my number three is about the uh, encounter card system. So this is a mixed one for me, kind of pro, kind of con. On the pro side, uh, I, I like that you just build a little encounter deck at the beginning. Something we didn't mention is that each tyrant has uh, one or two or even three cards unique to them that get seeded into the encounter deck. So you can have kind of uh, unique experiences there. And they have different encounter cards for solo or multiplayer. So you get different uh, stories played there. And there are some really cool, like, kind of special circumstances they throw you uh, in the encounter cards in terms of uh, the choices you have to make and the things that affect combat. That being said, a lot of times the choices are super obvious. So it's like, why would you ever make the other choice unless you just want to make the game hard for yourself? And the writing... as a writer myself, I find fairly mediocre, and I don't like... They just throw you into an event. It's like, you're captured, and it doesn't really lead to a cohesive story. Like, after I just won the last battle where I was on a bridge, it's like, hey, you're captured by enemies, and it, it just, it, it, it's kind of jarring sometimes. So, although I like some things about the encounter cards, in terms of the actual thematic immersion and, like, really telling a story through them, I think that was a bit of a failure. Yeah, no, I agree, and that is not on my list at all. But it is kind of a disjointed story, although I think some people will like the fact that there's a story at all. Uh, Each card does kind of tell an an interesting situation you get yourself into. And so if you can take it as something like something from The Hobbit where you're going through these different days and every day they're going through a different encounter, this one kind of throws you in the heart of the encounter, so you're not getting the build up to it. I didn't mind it as much, but I see where you're coming from. I'll get into the big uh, number one, but what's your number two, Peter? All right, so my number two is I really like combat in this game. Now, something you know about me is I am very big on tactical combat. I like moving around the board. I like positioning myself, and they have some really neat effects. So the enemies will sometimes do area effect, hitting everyone around you. So you may want to position yourself so you're near one of the enemies. Some enemies can only take one damage per round, so you have to figure out a way to either poison them or use their own attacks against them like with the area effect damage i really like the give and take in combat and for such a simple system where you're just rolling dice and each dice piece kind of tells you what it does i really like the tactical depth that it creates 
And the other part of that is the initiative system. I really like how the initiative system works. The first four enemies come on the board with their initiative, then you roll dice for yours. But not every gear lock has the same initiative on each side of their dice. Some gear locks are quicker than others. Now, of course, you can roll near the bottom of your range, and somebody who's slower could roll near the top of the range, and they can go before you. And you can go before or after enemies based on how you roll your initiative. But I really like how that system works. And it's very simple and clean, but yet provides a lot of tactical depth. Well, man, that was my number two uh, as well. And you totally stole my thunder. This is uh, the first uh, out-and-out pro I have for the game out of my list of five. Yeah, the the only thing I'll add is that I just think uh, I think Chip Theory Games, this is their wheelhouse. Between this and Hoplomachus, I think they are really good at simplistic tactical systems that allow for a lot of interesting choices within a fairly simple framework. I don't think uh, the tactics are as good here as Haplomachus, but that's just a consequence of a simpler board, and even though there are a lot of varieties of enemies, they they do feel fairly similar a lot of the time. But yeah, I, I agree with everything you said, Peter. Really good initiative system. I like that the AI is quick, but also gives you some options. Nice variety of enemy powers. It, it's a lot of fun. All right, Peter, number one. All right, my number one is, I think this game is just too bloated. I think if they had kept to the simplicity of the system, like I said, there are a lot of things I really like about the leveling system, how simple that is, about how simple between missions is, how simple combat is. You would think that would be the whole game, but then they add in a lot of keywords on stuff that, yes, it's nice to have some variety, but I think it's just too much. There's this whole separate system for opening up chests. Like, why? There could have been such an easier way to do things. They have this dart contest, which I still haven't done. I've probably played the game 10 times now, at least. And I've never played this darts game, so I have no idea what it is or when it comes up in the game. But they literally developed a whole game, mini game, inside of the game to play this darts thing. I just don't understand why they added all these extra layers when they should have focused on the core system, which is good... I think it could have been better if they took away some of this stuff. Yeah, the, the idea that they were, like, spending time playtesting the dart game or, like, how you open Trove loot. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very frustrating. Like, could that time have been spent, you know, fixing the rulebook or blind playtesting the game a little bit more? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I don't want to be negative at my number one, but, Mike, where are you at with your number one? Well, I'm I'm not negative, but I am mixed. Uh, this actually calls back two of your points earlier. I just put them together. So I put character variety as my number one, and it is a pro and a con. And uh, I don't want to repeat you too much, so I'll quickly summarize. So on the pro side, you do have four different characters, and they play very differently. That's great. On the con side, not all their abilities are balanced well. That's a little frustrating. You'll tend to like buy the same special abilities in a game. Not so great. We already had a debate about that, and it's it's a major pet peeve of mine. I do not like leveling games where there are not real options because they have not play-tested and balanced well enough to make things interesting. But the, the thing that I'll bring up that kind of bothered me the most and does push this, I think, slightly towards a con, even though, again, I do like how different the four characters are, Peter uh, mentioned that attack dice and defense dice and health and agility are always viable level-ups for any character. And um, I'm going to compare this to two games that are very much not uh, co-ops, but that probably uh, at least some of you listening have played. So um, there was a a very strong strategy in uh, Vanilla Dominion, the uh, first deck builder game, that I think people call the silver strategy, where... You have all these crazy cards, all these cool cool effects, 
but you can often win the game just by buying silver, and then once you have enough, buying the highest victory point cards in any of the game. And that was a pretty strong strategy. That was more pronounced in uh, the first couple editions of Puzzle Strike, which is David Serlin's kind of take on Dominion, um, but with direct combat. And in that one, you had the purple strategy, where you could basically just buy crash gems and combine gems, and uh, just go back and forth, and again, buy nothing from this big bank of interesting abilities, and you would beat almost anybody who was trying to do things that were more varied. So both those games fixed it, Dominion with Expansions uh, and Puzzle Strike in the, I guess, third edition, or maybe it was second edition. They made uh, the combined gems take away your money so you couldn't have a good economy going if you bought them. So this game, I think, has the exact same thing. A few of the enemies will require you to get certain abilities that can get through their defenses. So that, like, makes you buy maybe one or two dice. But... By and large, uh, with the couple of characters that I played most, especially uh, Tantrum, who's kind of like the Berserker, I had the best results and won the game most easily when I just bought attack dice and defense dice, the most basic, boring dice in the game. And all these custom dice and all this complicated player board and these complicated player aids that show me what all my powers are were useless and a total waste of time because all those dice, you use them once and they're gone. And it is in many cases, much better, especially against certain tyrants, to just get a whole bunch of attack and a whole bunch of defense and kick butt and not take any damage. So I'm, I'm very just, I'm frustrated about that. That uh, not only is the leveling samey, but it's very easy to just level the four characters. You, you could level any of these four characters identically and be able to beat some of the tyrants just the same, even though they have all this variety. So yeah, I, I do come a little bit negative at the end. I was just really frustrated at the wasted opportunity there. And at them, I feel making the... Because your cool dice go away... And this is just a frustrating thing in general. You have these awesome dice that make your character unique. And you might have, you know, three or four of them by the end of the game. But you use each of them once per fight. And then it's done. And, you know, I look at games like Gloomhaven, Imperial Assault, uh, you know, Descent 2nd Edition... Uh, any of those things. You get awesome abilities as you level up that you can use over and over again, and your character feels unique for the entire battle. And here I, I feel unique for, like, one round. So it, it, it was frustrating, especially in comparison to, I think, games that do the character variety and leveling in a better way. So, yeah, I, I guess it's a little bit of a con in the end. Yeah, well, I do think I'm going to come out a little bit higher than you on this game. I do like a lot of things they do. The big thing for me is the rules and just the overbloating of the rules. I think if they had just focused on their streamline system, I think if they had spent a little bit more time making sure that those tactics were as enjoyable as could be, and I really do think they're really good. You know, I know you're a little bit negative on some of the dice, but a lot of them do come up with cool powers, even if it is only for one round. So I'm a little bit more positive than you on this. I am a little positive on the game overall. I look forward to playing this game again. Maybe not three or four players, and that's one of the other things we actually didn't discuss at all. That didn't come up on either of our lists. But I don't know that the game scales well because the more players you have, just the bigger and more enemies you're going to fight. And so the game's just going to take longer and longer. It's going to get exponentially longer based on number of players. Well, and the other problem with that, um, yeah, which neither of us discussed, just because it's not a co-op issue, but if you play solo with a single gear lock, which I did do and I think Peter did as well, there's a major, like, just ridiculous balance issue with the final boss. 
with two or three or four players, the final boss has a whole army with him that helps him fight you. With one player, he has no army. He is by himself. And I played, you know, with the same character against the same tyrant, two player and one player. And two player was much tougher and a much more epic battle. One player was a joke. So I don't know how that got through testing, like how they thought that was okay to take away the entire enemy force when you had one player. It's just a very odd choice. But again, I, I've considered that a solo issue, so I didn't want to put it on my top five list for a co-op mode, but definitely bothered me. Yeah, but I do think overall for me, this game's a win. I'm not sad that I own it. I'm not sad that I purchase it. I will be playing it again in the future. I have fun. Like I said, the tactical nature of the combats overcome a lot of the negatives of this game for me. A lot of the rule stuff has been clarified at this point. I'm not really looking at FAQs anymore. Now, mind you, I'm 10 to 15 games in, and I've done a lot of research. It was very frustrating at first. If you had gotten me after one play, my my impressions of the game would have been a lot different. But now that I'm basically through the rules difficulties, I think if I play again now, even in six months from now, most of the rules are fairly straightforward, so I actually think I could get it to the table and not really have too many rules lookups at this point. So once you get into the game, I think a lot of these things go away, a lot of the negatives for the game, but you're still left with a pretty rich tactical experience, and I did enjoy it overall in the end. So Mike, how about you? Yeah, I, I don't want to come off as too negative. What you said, I'm, I'm interested in playing again. I enjoy it when I'm playing. It, it's just, it, it's more looking from the outside at the overall design. As kind of you said, Peter, there are just a lot of missed opportunities, and I think it could have been a much better game with not that much effort, and or even just redirected effort, like as they put time into things that don't add anything to the experience. Um, yeah, I think if I had bought it... I'd probably trade it, but with you owning it, I'm totally up for more games of it. So I, I guess that puts me in a pretty like kind of medium area with the game. I would not recommend buying it unless you tried it first. So it's it's a it's a cautious kind of slightly positive review I have for it. Yeah, and I think there are going to be people who love this game, and I think there are people that are actually going to absolutely hate it. So I think if you're one of those people that's going to go in and need every rule to be absolutely clear, and you try to use this rule book to learn it without somebody teaching you, I think you're going to have a bad time. But if you can get past all that, get into the gameplay, you know, you're going to read the stories once or twice, and they'll be interesting. After that, you know, you're just really going to figure out what the, the resolve effects are, you know, how you have to fight this battle differently than the next. But I think you will enjoy the game if you can get past that initial rules barrier that's there. All right, so let's get into our design discussion. Yeah, so kind of going off uh, the chip theory games philosophy, the question is, when should game companies strive for kind of a deluxe experience with uh, really nice components, like, again, chip theory games strives for, but also at a much higher price point, which might make it harder to get into the game? And when should companies strive for, and what are the benefits of trying to make a game affordable and maybe cutting corners with components or at least making them not the most deluxe version so that more people can afford it at a a cheaper price. So Peter, you want to start off with a point uh, maybe toward the high price, why that's a good thing? Well, I actually came up with, you know, I was writing down pros and cons for both high, medium and low cost things. And it kind of came out to a continuum for me. So try to follow me on this theory here. And sorry, I'm not going to try to get too mathy on things, but I think there's a spectrum. 
And games are going to be, I think the benefit lies somewhere in the middle, as with a lot of these discussions. But on one end, you have like low cost. And the benefits of low cost are obvious in that it's going to be much more accessible for people. More people can get into the game at a lower entry point and be able to play it much easier because they can afford it. Whereas on the high end of the cost, I do think the thing you gain with higher cost is usually higher component quality. And with that comes, I believe, more immersion. And so I think you do have this spectrum where I think lower cost games, if you get to too low of a point, you really can take yourself out of the game because you're looking at pieces of paper and it's obviously pieces of paper with low quality art and things like that. Whereas when you get to the higher end, you have these cool miniatures and you really do kind of glob onto them. And so I really think it gets you into the game a lot more as you get toward the higher end cost games. And so I think you're actually paying for a different experience, a better experience, in my opinion. I'm with you on that. And I, I think this I think this is similar to the movie industry and a lot of things in that increasing technology and more efficient you know, practices and fat manufacturing and that kind of stuff leads us to having a higher baseline for what is good enough. So if I see a movie with, you know, 1980s style special effects in 2017, that might have been fine when I was a kid, but I watch that now and I'm like, God, this is terrible. What what is wrong with this movie? And similarly, you know, back when I was a, a little kid and played some games, I would get a game with ugly little token shits, you know, and uh, like a paper map. And some people still like that for war games, but... You show that to a casual gamer these days when they're used to paying $30 with, again, more efficient, cheaper Chinese manufacturing. And you know, they're used to paying $30 for a game that has a beautiful board and has really nice art and has nice-to-handle components. And I just think it can lead to a negative experience. So as time progresses, we gain higher expectations for what the minimum kind of quality of game is. And some games even bring you right into that experience from opening the box. There are two games that stick out to me very specifically. Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle, which is not an expensive game, but they spent a lot of time on that box design, right? The box looks like a crate. As you open it, you see the Marauder's map. It's printed on the outside of the board. That's a little touch where typically back of boards are just black, but they printed and it looks like the inside of a suitcase when you open it up with a picture of the Marauder's map. Now, that's not a big deal, but that little bit of attention to detail really gets you immersed right when you come in. And the other one is Mechs vs. Minions. You have all these miniatures and they're all put in their own little perfectly fit, you know, vacuum form spots. You've got a big bad enemy breaking out of his cage. So I think even the things, the little attention to detail like that can really add to an immersion of a game even before you get to open the rule book. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Though I will say, uh, as you mentioned with Harry Potter, this doesn't necessarily have to correlate with a game being really expensive. Um, at an even lower price point than Harry Potter, the games in the, uh, I think it's the Oniverse, Oniram and Sylveon and all of those, uh, those have a similar thing to what you were saying with Harry Potter. You open them up and they've got a little just like cardboard fold out that creates a picture combining the, uh, the rule book with these little totally superfluous little cardboard pieces. Oniram has this little demon figure that in most of the base game and expansions is literally not used at all, but it looks kind of cute and just sits on the table. 
So yeah, I, I do think that there's a difference between high price points and just being very thoughtful and artistic with like your graphic design and your construction. Though I will definitely admit that you are more likely to get that kind of stuff when a game is expensive. Like you can't pay thirty dollars and get the amazing stuff that you get in Next, in Next versus Minions. This is something I wanted to bring up, and this is uh, kind of also on the high price side beyond the experience, and it's related to the experience, but. I think it's a lot easier to bring a casual gamer in, especially in a like a con setting or at a store or that kind of thing, but also even with your family, if you have beautiful stuff to show them. So if somebody walks by a <laughs> a dry, like token-based area control game, they might not be that interested. But if they walk by Blood Rage and see these amazing miniatures just sitting by the board and just want to look at them, I, I think they can really make it an easier sell to get a casual player to try out a game that might not be what they're used to. And again, miniatures especially, but you know, same thing with Harry Potter. I think you're going to get somebody to try that because it is so beautiful. And again, beautiful games don't have to be expensive, but if you really want nice miniatures and all that kind of stuff that can really wow a prospective gamer, you're probably going to have to pay for that. Well, and there is a price to that, and that's what we're going to get into next. I think this new age of gaming has brought in new pricing of gaming. I don't know if you remember, but when Agricola got released, that was 70 bucks. And I remember talking to Zev, the owner of Z-Man at the time, and he was worried that it was going to sell because of that price. I mean, that was a very high price game. Now it is very common to see games coming out at $70. In fact, I think most games are 60 or $70 nowadays. Yeah, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, I buy so much stuff. I, I get a discount at my local game store, and I we also buy from cool stuff and those kind of companies. So yeah, I, th- I think you're probably right. I'm used to paying $45 for a game, which without the discount is probably 60 So that might just be inflation to an extent, right? Well, to some degree, but look at the difference in components between, I mean, the first edition Agricola was $70, and that came out with wooden cubes. Granted, a ton of them, but there were no animeeples at that point. They were just discs for your farmers. They weren't even stickered. There was a lot of cards that came with it, but... Now, if you saw that game for $70, you might think twice about it. Whereas now, for $70, the amount of stuff you're getting in the game seems like a lot more. Because manufacturing prices have come down, I guess. But yet, the prices of the games are still going up. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, Something else about a high price game, and I don't think this is all gamers, but I do think there's something to be said for the value of having a few games that are really nice as opposed to tons and tons of games. If you look at either of our game shelves, there are like, you know, entire like rows of 10, 15 games that are all kind of mediocre, didn't cost that much. We just picked up because they were like 10 or $15 and we might've played them like once or twice. But the games that we really get into, that we buy lots of expansions for, or that are very expensive to start out with, Gloomhaven, Mechs vs. Minions, they kind of own some shelf space. I think the very price of them makes them more of a presence in your mind in terms of wanting to play them. So I think there's something to be said for a high price game. You know, I, I guess psychologically you want to get the value out of it. So it almost feels like a better game and feels like something you want to play more just by virtue of you having paid more money for it. No, that makes a lot of sense. But I know you also had some points on the other side of the spectrum because for you, I think 
it's getting to a point where it's almost too much, right? Yeah, oh, totally. And yeah, it, it's interesting. I was doing my pros and cons. And when we had first talked about this before the podcast, I, I was saying I'm on the affordability side. And I think I am, but I saw a lot more pros than I thought I would with the uh, the high price thing. But that being said, um, not every game falls into this. I look at Gloomhaven, Mechs vs. Minions. I would be 100% fine paying as much money as those games cost. I'd be, I'd be fine paying more money than those games cost. But I do think that a lot of the high price games, and especially I'm talking about games that are heavy on miniatures, uh, often in Kickstarter, I think it, it bothers me when they seem superfluous and when they even get in the way. So Blood Rage, I said, is beautiful. You can get people to play the game more easily. But I do find those miniatures superfluous. Um, and they actually are so large that I find they like in, uh, impact my ability to see what's going on in the board because it just take up so much space and like block sight lines and stuff. And a worse example, I, I haven't played it yet, but I've, I've read uh, complaints about it in several reviews. Uh, Massive Darkness, the uh, cool mini or not dungeon crawler that came out recently. The boss monsters will have a number of mob like sort of minions with them that are literally just used to mark their life. So this game is very expensive, has hundreds, or maybe not hundreds, but at least over a hundred miniatures. And the vast majority of those miniatures are just life markers. And <laughs> you'll spawn an enemy, have to find like these ten miniatures, put them down on the board, and then often immediately be able to attack them, and at least again, based on the reviews I've read, remove like seven or eight of those miniatures. And it's it's just a time waster. Why am I paying so much money for an element that not only is not making the game quicker to play or more interesting play, but is actually making the game take longer and be more dull because I'm, like, engaging in the drudgery of putting and taking away miniatures? So it's definitely not something that applies to all of these games, but sometimes the high price, it, it, not only is it not contributing the experience, but I feel like I've wasted money to add stuff that is totally unnecessary. Yep. No, I definitely hear you there. In my notes here, I kind of came up with a solution that I thought would work out for both ends of the spectrum. And hear me out, see what you think of this. I think it would be cool if games came out with either two versions, which I know is tough because you got to print it twice, or better yet, probably just a miniature pack that you can add to the game. So that way you can go in and everybody, or not everybody, but you have a much broader audience that can go in and experience the game, try it out. It's a lower barrier to entry to see if you like the game. And then if you do like it, those are the games I want to be really blinged up, right? Those are the ones I want to buy extra stuff for. I mean, Fantasy Flight does it with Imperial Assault. Now, I think they go a little too far because they break it down to these microtransactions. Yeah. <laughs> but if you had one pack to, like, bling out your game, and I think people like Stonemeyer do this, right? Like, they've got a base game, and hey, you love this game? buy an upgrade pack for it. And now you can do all these cool things and really have the best version of your favorite game. So I think there could be a middle ground. It might be a little more expensive overall. Maybe you're paying an extra 10 bucks for the game at the end of it, but you could try it out for 40. And then if you really like it, you pay another 30 to get all the miniatures and blinged out stuff. So now you've paid 70 for the game, or maybe it would have been 60 if it was in one box, but at least now you've got the option of what level of the game do I want to get? Yeah, I, I like that a lot when people do that, and I do agree that if done well, it can actually make more money for the publisher because they're selling two separate products, and the price of two combined is more than one. And I would say like Arkham Horror LCG fits into that. It's a fairly low entry if you just want to play the base box, but clearly very expensive once you get all the expansions, and I've gotten little extra things to bling up the game. 
Uh, Gloomhaven had the standy only version. I know that's not there anymore, but standy only version. You could add miniatures. A lot of Kickstarters have done that. Yeah, so I, I agree with you. I think it's a really nice option to offer when it's feasible, when the company has the logistics, when when the game is successful enough to make that workable, I guess. Because you have to anticipate that a, a decent portion of the customer base is going to buy just the base game and not go further than that. So if you can't make it economical for you, then you can't do it. Right. So did you have any other key points for the discussion? Yeah, the, the only other thing is that sometimes I think... Now, I, I have no you know way to verify this, but it would not surprise me if so much time is spent on blinging a game up that maybe it takes away from time spent on designing and playtesting the game. Now, I'm not sure if those are mutually exclusive things. I think for a small design house, that would totally make sense. If there's only like two or three people working on a game, they have to, you know, all the time they're spending trying to do quality control and all this stuff on more components and more expensive components is clearly time they can't be designing the game and making it better. But I don't know if that affects a company like Cool Mini or Fantasy Flight where they've got such large staffs that they can probably have different teams working on different aspects and make it work. Like with uh, Chip Theory Games, I don't think they're a huge company. I have to imagine that in putting all this time into making like this crazy box and all these components and all these dice and all these symbols and stuff, maybe some time was lost for making the rules clear or making the game better. Not any evidence to go off of that, but it would not surprise me. Yeah, I agree, especially for smaller houses, like you were saying, I think where it's a publisher and designer are the same person, I think you do have to divide your attention. But the one thing I wanted to say in contrast to that is there are actually separate roles we're talking about here. And that's one thing I wanted to get into, and I I meant to say it at the beginning, but I didn't. We call this a design discussion, but this is really more publisher end stuff. As a designer, and especially if you're up-and-coming designer here, don't expect to make these decisions yourself. You might have a really cool component that you're able to sneak into a game that wouldn't have been in there otherwise, but really the publisher is going to make the decisions as far as what level of quality of components they want to put in it. You may have something in there as a little chit. They may upgrade it to a miniature later on. So I do think that you have, at least in the traditional designer-publisher relationship, You have two different groups. One should be focused on the rules, making them as good as possible, gameplay, balance, things like that. That's the design side. That's the development side. And on the other side, the publisher, they're going to work on getting the art right, the graphic design, going to the right manufacturer to make sure that the components are the highest quality possible. So those should be, in a lot of places, separate But I think you're right. I think in some of these smaller design situations or when you're kickstarting your own project, I think you do have to decide where you're going to put your time. And maybe that is sometimes where some of the quality gets lost. Well, I mean, (laughs) I I hate to bring this up, but uh, Zaya, didn't that guy like do the 3D designs for the ships himself and like all that kind of stuff? Yep. So, well, not to hide my opinion of Zaya too much, but I think the base game without any expansions is a poorly tested sandbox mess. (laughs) so i wonder if uh, he was working so hard on making the admittedly beautiful components and ships and you know forgot to design a game a little bit in there yeah and that gets a taste too but i think that is a hard road to go down because some people love that game and some people aren't going to love it i love games like castles of burgundy some people look at those components and go i would never play that thing (laughs) so 
I mean, it really is. That's the interesting part about the game world we're in right now is there are such varied opinions on things. Some people play Munchkin every week. You know, some people are still just into magic. Some people are into role playing. Like it's such a divided hobby right now. And even you and I who are in the same game group, I can't stand area control and I'm not a huge fan of deck building. And you love both of those things, right? So it's funny how even people with similar tastes can have such different tastes as well. And that's why designing a fun game, a good game for everybody is kind of hard. Yeah. I don't think you can, but that's that's also the beauty of the divided and varied game world we have. The hobby's grown, and you can make a game that is super niche and only some people will like and still potentially have a lot of success with it. Yeah, I, I don't know if, if we'll ever make a game that is a huge kind of across-all-genre sort of unmitigated success, but you don't need to. You can you can make moderately successful games that a large number of people in their core group enjoy, and I think there's there's nothing better than that as a designer. Yeah, it's kind of the dream to pursue that huge success that breaks records and everybody loves and everybody has in their collection. But you don't need that. Yeah, and I mean the designer can only go so far as well. And the discussion we had today about cost really does go to a publisher level. And you know you can design the best game in the world. But if it doesn't have good art, if it doesn't have good graphic design, if it doesn't have that extra whatever it is, whether it's minis, whatever, people will pay more for that stuff. I mean, that's what we're finding out now, right? Like, people are paying more. The reason people keep adding miniatures to every game is because they sell more, right? So, you know, as a designer, you do your best to design it. But really, it's a team effort getting a game out. And that's why we had this as part of, like, our design discussion, even though it's not really specifically a designer role. I do think it is as much a part of the success of a game as the design itself. Absolutely. Well, hey, we did it, Peter. Yep, we made it to the end of another episode, and so did you. So thanks for joining us again, and we'll see you in a couple weeks on another episode of Co-Opcast. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Co-Opcast. We'll be back in two weeks to review another cooperative board game. Until then, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. Also, if you like co-op games and why else would you be here, check out coopboardgames.com. They have some great cooperative board game material. If you want to contact us, feel free to follow us on Twitter at mvpboardgames or email us at mvpboardgames at gmail.com. Like, why? Yeah, there's three main games in that <laughs> Sorry, series. Sorry, I was like choking. <coughs> oh my god. Everyone, Peter has the plague. Stop listening to this podcast immediately. You might die. Yes, well, good thing this is going to be in the outtakes, and so if you stop listening now, it's fine. Good gaming, everyone.